0: Our lesson today is from uh, the book Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. We're continuing. It's our third week. And uh, last week we talked about peace with God. We talked about living a life of peace with God. Uh, that's the title of the second chapter, Live at Peace. And um, we ended with this. I actually filled in the blanks for you at the top if you got an outline. Hopefully that will help you uh, through this. We, fill, we, we had this... Um, discussion of the three dimensions of God's peace, uh, or three dimensions of peace that God offers through Christ. So the three dimensions of this peace. The first is peace with God, which is established at salvation. Uh, Romans 5, 1 and 2, uh, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then peace with others, this peace should flow out of our peace with God. We ought to have good peace with others. And then thirdly, peace within yourself, this idea that there should be a calmness and a peace in your heart. And uh, we said in Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, right? Because he trusts in you. That's Isaiah 26, 3. So this byproduct of righteousness, internal peace is a byproduct of righteousness. As we keep our mind and our heart on the Lord, uh, we will find that God gives peace. We should not assume that peace should precede righteousness. Peace flows from righteous behavior. Uh, then we move on, and he makes this point um, that, that peace, that Jesus's reputation, that's your blank there, Jesus's reputation, another way to think about this is our testimony. By the way, in case you're wondering, this is the book, The Peacemaker, if you're just joining us. If you want to copy of this book, I think we might have still a few copies left um, that we're uh, giving away, basically, about four or five dollars, whatever uh, works for you. I think five dollars is what we said, uh, and they're over there in the, uh, in, the, in the library. I'd be happy to get one for you. Jesus' reputation depends on our, uh, um, on our unity, on our unity. So peace in our relationships is, as he puts here in the book, an essential element of your Christian witness. So I need some helpers to read some passages. So if you can grab your Bible, we have a lot of ground to cover today. Um, let's look at uh, Matthew 5, 9. And um, I, I cheated this time and I printed out all the verses so I didn't have to flip through all of them so fast. But uh, let's see what the Bible tells us about, um, about this. Uh, how is uh, peace in our relationship an essential element of a Christian witness? Uh, Matthew 5.9. Yes, ma'am. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay, sons of God or children of God or people who reflect the character of God. Just like in the, uh, in the Bible when Jesus says... Uh, you, you sons of, uh, uh, you know, you're a son of Belial. You're, you're you are a, you're, uh, you your father the devil. It's the idea of your, you have the character traits of Satan himself. Here, the character trait of God is to be one who is a peacemaker. How about John 22-23? Yes, sir. Okay, it's amazing. It's amazing when you consider the unity of a Christian church should be a testimony of God's working in us that we're able to put aside our little personal things and unify around the Lord and to honor the Lord. It doesn't matter what class, social class, you are. it doesn't matter what your background, it doesn't matter what your nationality is, you should be able to come together and honor the Lord and be united uh, with one another. In fact, in John 13, uh, we have this unity because of one particular character trait we're supposed to demonstrate. Who has John 13, 34, and 35? Okay, Kedron? Give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, so the key character trait is what? Loving each other that leads towards unity with each other, and that's part of Jesus's reputation. Christ's reputation in, in in our world depends on our willingness to get along, and that is something you actually see. You see people who will say things like that. Who will say things like, "Well, these Christians they can't get along," so and, and and that's not a good excuse, but it is an excuse, right? It is something people say, and I think that our attitude, our our peace that we have with each other, should be a good example. Let's skip down to the next one. I want you, everybody to look at Matthew five. If you have your Bible, turn here because this is important. Um, um, that are, we must, we're still talking about being at peace with other people right now. In Matthew 5, starting in verse 21, everyone there, you're going to get there in your Bibles, Matthew five twenty-one. Jesus here is speaking, and this is a section where He talks about, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So, He's talking about the law. He's extending the law. He's talking about the, the heart of the law, more than just the letter of the law. There's a tendency for people to, uh, to focus on the letter of the law. Jesus here is speaking uh, directly, uh, and, and he, says, he says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Look at verse 23. This is really important. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother as something against you, what should you do? Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled. To your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The key idea here is that you must be at peace with others before you can worship. That's your blank. Before you can worship, God places a higher priority on our relationships being right with each other than He does on us gathering for corporate worship. If you're and even giving, He says, if you're standing in line, the way they used to do things, they would stand in line to give gifts right? They stand in line, come to the front. We should start doing that, right? Everybody come, line up, find, you know, and deliver your gift. No, this was, this was the way they did thing in the Jewish temple, right? So they come, and they're bringing their gifts to the altar, and they bring, they bring, they bring their gift, and somebody's standing in line, and he's maybe like three people away, and he's thinking to himself, oh, I've got this problem. What does he have to do? He, he, can, he can just like say, well, I'll deal with this after I sar- sacrifice this or after I give this, and, and Christ says, no, 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 don't do that. Why? Why, why is that important? Why should we stop what we're doing, get out of line, go home, find your brother, reconcile, then come back, get in the back of the line, and go through that whole process again? Why should you do that? Right, there is a forgiveness. He even says that how we treat our brethren, like if you, if you, if you don't forgive your brethren, I, I'm not going to forgive you because it's disobedience, right? And it, but there's, I think it's that, that he places that high a priority and us having peace with each other, that, that is not right for us to be worshiping God and hypocrisy in the church of us sitting here and, and like saying, oh, Lord, I love you and everything's great, where we're at, dis, at disunity with each other is, is hypocrisy. Yes, Bill. You are know, 100% accurate in that. We, it's the old sinful nature. How can we come before the Lord with our old sinful nature with sin and worship the Lord? We mm. can't do that. Yeah. We worship and work, as Eric was saying one Sunday, uh, Worship in spirit and truth, you know, which is a love for the Lord, and ourself, we don't want to get in the road of that, and it can, so we have to get our act together first. That's good. Absolutely, and I I believe every person ought to have a moment of quiet uh, before they come in to worship God, to evaluate their heart, make sure they're right before God. Uh, I think it's very important. Um, In the book, he says, I pulled a quote here, uh, he says, we cannot love and worship God properly if we are at odds with another person and have not done everything in our power to be reconciled. Okay, that's, that's a very sobering, sobering sentence, and I think it's what Jesus is teaching here. Because there are some people who have long-standing conflicts that have not been reconciled. Long-standing, like years and years and years, there is unreconciled things, and Jesus says we need to deal with those immediately because you need to be at peace with others before you can worship. What are some enemies of peace? Enemies of peace, uh, Acts chapter 5 in verse 3, um, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And what was the, what was the, the sin that led towards this uh, debacle? What was the sin? Um, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Do you remember what, what, what that story involves? I put it on your sheet, greed and dishonesty. Greed and dishonesty. It's right there on your first bullet point under enemies of peace. Greed and dishonesty. So, Ananias is is being greedy, and he's being dishonest before the people there. He says, yes, I brought the whole offering, and uh, and then he, he of course, uh, was holding back some. Um, and we, We've talked about this before. So, um, let's go to the next passage. What about this one? Um, look at 2 Timothy 2. Who could read verses 25 and 26 for me? 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. And then, yes, sir. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Okay, another enemy of peace, and this is probably one we don't talk about enough, is that there, is actually, there are actually people who are, who are deceived by Satan himself. Notice the way he describes this, Uh, correct those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth, why does he say this so harshly or so directly in this way, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will? There are teachers in this case, those who are in the opposition who have been taken captive, been deceived by satanic lies. And in doing so, they need to be rescued by God from that satanic lie. So deception from Satan is an enemy of peace. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Who would like to read that? Yes, Jenna? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Okay, so we have greed, and dishonesty, deception from Satan, and Unresolved anger. Unresolved anger. He says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let your sun go down on, the ra- on your wrath, meaning that you should not allow time to pass so, that, so much so that you let the sun go down while you're still angry. You need to resolve this before you go to bed, is another way of saying it. Another, say, another way of people saying this is don't go to bed angry. But unresolved anger definitely causes uh, great problems of peace. And in fact, he says at the end there, neither give place to the devil. What does it mean to give an opportunity for the devil to, to trip you up? Is what he's saying there. The last one is First Timothy 4. We're not going to read this passage, but he, he says that in, in latter times there will be false teachers who come and they promote wrong values that encourage selfishness and stimulate controversy. You can see that today, can't you, in churches or in the, in, on YouTube? That's the new like, way people get caught up in stuff, is they get on YouTube and then they start watching videos and there's another video, and there's another video, and then there's the algorithm that recommends this video, and then they get, next thing you know, they believe all kinds of crazy stuff, and they've been taught by people who have no business teaching the Bible. You have to be very careful who you listen to, but you don't know necessarily what their perspective is, and sometimes people say things that sound good, but uh, they, they come from a bad place. So, these things are all dangerous enemies of peace. So, how do we do this? How do we combat Satan's opposition to peace? Uh, in the book, he puts this out. He says we must actively, we must actively resist the devil. Um, and 1 Peter five nine says, "Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world." Resist the resist the devil. There is an active resisting that needs to take place. Um, the other one. Um, uh, Ephesians 6.12, Ephesians 6.12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, powers. powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in high places. We, to combat Satan's opposition to peace, we must actively resist the devil, and we must strive. We must strive in our peacemaking. That verse, instead of John 4.7, should say James 4.7. Sorry about that. It's, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Apologize for that mistake. We must strive in our peacemaking. Ephesians 4. Who can read Ephesians 4, 1 through 3? Somebody want to read that for us? Yes, ma'am, Patty. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Okay, I want you to look at that last phrase. To keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What word is right before that? What verb? Well, it's a parcel. Endeavoring. Endeavoring. What does that mean? Striving, working, trying. Like working hard to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's not something that just happens. It takes work. And, and so when we are, if we're going to have Peace in our churches, peace in our families. It's going to take active work. It's, we're going to have to strive in our peacemaking. It's not going to be something that just happens. I, I want us to look here, um, this second uh, section here, we're going to talk a little bit about the church and the court. Uh, one of the things that uh, ha- we talk about in, in, in this book, and in fact in the scripture, we talk about uh, why we should, in fact, the Bible tells us as believers, we are to settle our disputes in the church rather than in court. We're not to take each other to to court. Now, there's, there's a difference here between, um, between criminal behavior and civil behavior, and what he's talking here is about civil disputes, not about murder or not about uh, someone, you know, uh, arson, burns down your house, and they happen to be in the church. Well, I can't take them to court. You know, it's just what it is. In fact, there's interesting, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a legal scholar, but there's interesting fact that in things like in murder or, or, or crimes like this, have you ever noticed that it's, it's the state who brings the claim against the person? It's not individuals right? It's the state of South Carolina versus Marshall Fant, right? For the for the crime that I might commit. It's, it, that's, but, but when it's civil, it's person to person, okay? So that that is partially, I think, uh, why our system is set up that way, is that I don't have to bring a court case to, because uh, in fact, when I'm murdered, I can't bring the court case, right? The state has to execute justice on my behalf. So why should we, biblically speaking, keep these uh, resolutions out of civil court and in the church. The Bible tells us this in First Corinthians. It tells us we are to do this. So let's look at these. Uh, these are just some examples. And I wonder uh, what you think about these. Is straight from the book. Okay. I gave you a chart. He didn't give me a chart, but I like I like charts, and I like I like charts because they help me see things uh, clearly. So here you go. You ready? Uh, number on, on one side we have litigation. So litigation, which is of course the court and um, on the other side, we have biblical peacemaking. So, what we're doing here, and if you're going to make peace in the church, or if you're going to just decide you want to litigate, what's the, what's the issue here? Number one, litigation usually increases tensions and often destroys relationships. I have seen this happen. Uh, I've seen this happen because when people go into court, the lawyer's job is to make you look good and to destroy the other person, okay, every time. And so if, if this is what happens in litigation, it usually does not, it usually increases the tension, makes things worse. People are like, I just want to take it to court and settle it. It's going to make it way more, way more tension, a lot more tension, a lot more trouble. Whereas biblical peacemaking encourages forgiveness and reconciliation, We're going to work through things like Matthew 18, uh, where he gives us the steps for uh, church discipline. And in Matthew 18, you may know this off the top of your head, what's the goal of each time people go? So it's one-on-one, then two or three-on-one, and then the church. What's the goal every time? Do you remember? To gain your brother, brother, restoration, reconciliation, however you want to say it. The goal is not to be proven right. Right? or to exact some sort of payment from them. As it is in our, our, our court system, the goal would be to get some sort of payment from them or to be proven, declared right, right? Here it's forgiveness and reconciliation because the goal is the restoration of the relationship, okay? Uh, number two, what's another thing that litigation does? Well, it doesn't deal with the underlying cause of the conflict. They don't care why. They only care that, Right? They don't care why you, why you uh, hit somebody, you know, and, and assaulted them. They don't care why you um, have this argument or whatever. Um, and it tends to lead people to be adversarial. This is what I was saying earlier about this, is that it, it, I have seen it, like I said, over and over again. Whenever you, bring, whenever you bring lawyers into the room, and this happens with marriages, if there's a marriage. And they're trying to work to resolve it. Um, I'll always ask, uh, say, so have either one of you filed for divorce? And the minute the minute somebody files for divorce or brings lawyers into it, everything changes because now, now it's adversarial. They're going to they're going to say the worst things they can about the par- other partner in order to get the very best they can out of out of their situation. That's what that's what they're doing. That's what they're paid to do. And so that's what you find. Whereas biblical peacemaking points people to Christ to solve the root problem. Okay, when you, come, when you come for trying to resolve an issue in the church, and we're sitting down to talk about it, we go through the four G's of get the log out of your own eye, right? Gently restore, glorify God It's the first one, go and be reconciled. You are, you are dealing with root issues. And we've done this before. We've, ta- we've talked about roots and fruits in our discussion here. I've done this. It's been several years. I might need to go through it again. But the basic idea is, as we look at the Christian's life, often we describe it like a tree. And the tree has a root system underground, and it has fruits. And the fruits that we see out here are either good fruits or bad fruits. And if we have bad fruits, we don't resolve our issue by taking all the bad fruits off and putting good fruits from the grocery store on the trees by stapling them or taping them on there. It doesn't work. The, any kind of change has to come from within. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. An evil man out of the either tra- evil, evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we have out here is what you can see is just what you can see. There, is all kind, there are all kinds of behaviors that are, that are detestable. But what's, if you stop doing a behavior, that doesn't solve your problem. Put off is just the first step towards sanctification, right? What's the second step? Put off, renew the mind, and then what's the third? Put on. Okay, it's not about, it's not about just stopping lying or stopping stealing. He says, let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him Work with his hands the thing that is good that he may have to give to him who has need. There is a transformation that takes place. It's not just that he stops stealing and starts not stealing. It's that he stops stealing. He changes his mind about his relationship to possessions. He stops thinking of things that other people have with envy. And he stops thinking about, like, taking what other people have worked for, for his own benefit. And now he starts doing things for… he starts working so other people can be blessed by his work. It's a complete opposite. So, this is what happens when you deal with correct peacemaking. That is not going to happen in a courtroom. A judge does not care about your root problems. They only care about what happened. They only care about this stuff, what happened. Okay? So, so litigation does not really deal with the root issue, which is why you have repeat offenders, um, which is why, you know, the, the government cannot rehabilitate. Sorry. They can't do it. This, that's not what they're called to do, and they can't. It's, in, it's impossible for them to do that. It's not their job. Um, and also, they're limited in the remedies. They're limited in the remedies that they can promote. Um, you know, a, a, um, a judge can only say you can do, you can, a judge has a limited uh, tool, toolbox that he can use right? And, and, and usually it's money or jail time or something like that or a program. He He's limited. Whereas we can actually, by doing biblical peacemaking in the church, you can promote real solutions. And he gives an example in the book about how there was a family problem. There was a, a brothers, I think, that were, if I'm trying to remember this story right, there was a problem with like an estate uh, with dad, mom passed away, and there was a major conflict among the brothers and they were threatening to take it to the court and have the court, like, divide it all up. But what what the, the root problem had to do with their relationship with each other was fractured. And so one of the solutions is that they had to get together and spend, like, I think they had breakfast together or they met together once a month and talked and worked through things. And not only did it not... Did they not have the rest of their life where they had a judge tell them who got what part of the property and where it went? Now they actually developed a good relationship with each other and they started actually having peace with each other and having their brothers got restored to each other because they were the pastor worked with them was able to to give them a real solution. And of course, the most obvious example is that with litigation, it threatens the witness for Christ. By um, that's what Paul says in First Corinthians, and uh, by doing biblical peacemaking, it preserves a witness for Christ. So so be careful uh, to, you know, we are in a litigation trigger-happy society, right? Be careful about that as being your first job. Any, any questions? I kind of plowed through that. I don't want to skip right by that without addressing any concerns or questions you might have. What are your thoughts? People are nodding. Oh, that sounds good. Okay. All right, I'm not going to belabor it, but if you want to come back to it, let me know, okay? Let's look a little bit at chapter 3. We have about five minutes. I think we can flip the page. Uh, he talks about trusting in God and what trust looks like in the Lord. I, I love the way he describes this. If, you'll, um, if you read the book, you, you'll, you'll know what I mean. He says, the more and better you know God, the easier it is to trust Him. And the more you trust Him, the easier it is to obey. So I, I again, drew, some, I drew it out like this. You know, once you know God, you can trust God. And once you trust God, you can obey God. And I was reading a book today by Leighton Talbert called The Trustworthiness of the Word of God. It's very good. He talks about the fact that to believe God is not necessarily always the same to trust God. Trust is belief in action, okay? Trust is the fulfillment of belief. So, he gives the example, uh, it's not in this book, it's a different book, he gives the example of um, flying on an airplane. He says, someone who won't fly on an airplane, it's not that necessarily they, they don't believe airplanes can fly. They see them fly all the time. It's that they don't trust the airplane that they're getting on, that it will take them to their next location. So they don't wanna, he said, that's it. Trust, belief is trust, I'm sorry, trust is belief actualized. It's belief worked out. And um, so to know, but the, the, the more you know, the, more, the easier it is to trust. Right? The guy comes by your door knocks on your door and says, hey, I have this amazing thing. You spray it on anything, it cleans anything. And you're like, okay thank you for coming by, and you close the door, right? You ignore him. You're like, I'm not going to buy something from somebody I don't know. Like, it could be a bottle of water for all I know. I don't know. Like, what is this? Um, but it's your brother, your sister, who you know how picky they are. And they come over and say, you're not going to believe this. This stuff works. It's crazy. And they show you this spray bottle stuff. Same stuff. Are you going to believe them? You're, you, because you know them and you trust them, you're willing to obey what they say. It's a silly example. But the same goes for Christ and our relationship with God. If you find yourself not being obedient, what does that mean? You need to get to know the Lord more by being in the Word of God and spending time with Him. Amen. You need to get in God's Word. How, how do you get to know God? Do you go out in the woods and just, and just close your eyes and just lift your hands up in the sky? Is that how you get to know God? No, he's revealed himself to you through his word. Get to know him through, his ri- through the written word of God. And the more you know him, you will learn to trust him. And the more, as you trust him, you will obey him. Very simple, but very profound. I really loved that. And one way that we talked about um, trusting God and knowing about God is trusting in God's sovereignty. There's two things he wants us to trust in when it comes to God. One is his sovereignty. Is one is his, good, his goodness is the other one. We're going to talk about God's sovereignty at first. Um, to define His sovereignty. He says, to be sovereign means to be supreme, unlimited, and totally independent of any other influence. And if you notice from Psalm 8610, God alone has this power. This is God's power. God is sovereign. We're not sovereign. God is sovereign. Psalm 8610 says, you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And Psalm Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, say, Remember the former things of old, for I am the God, there is no other, I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. God is sovereign. God is in control. What are the domains of God's sovereignty? Number one, creation and preservation. Creation and preservation. That means that God created the world, that shows his sovereignty, preserves the world. Colossians 1 talks about him, by him all things consist. Who can read Proverbs 21, 1? Somebody pick that up real quick. Proverbs 21, 1. Anybody got it? Not yet? I start reading passages and then you guys fall asleep. Yes, Jenna. Okay, and then that, so the second blank there is governments, governments. Daniel 2 uh, talks about God's, uh, that's the, Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And then in Daniel 4, we have his speech, um, God can do whatever He wants. Uh, Jeremiah 18 and John 6, etc., Romans 9, Ephesians 1, James 4, individual lives, individual lives and destinies individual lives and destinies are under God's sovereignty. And then also, Matthew ten twenty nine. Can someone read that? Matthew ten twenty nine. Yes, sir, Dan. Are not too sold for a coin? And not one <coughs> falls to the ground apart from your father's grave? Okay, so I put here small events. <coughs> Small, insignificant events. Things like, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin your father knows when they fall to the ground? So when t- to learn to trust God, you have to know God and know and his sovereignty, know about him, know him personally. Then we can trust him, then we can obey him. This is the, the path to, to, uh, to peace, path to making peace, to knowing, trusting the Lord as he says at the top of the chapter and doing good. Any questions? We'll wrap up here. And we'll pick up at uh, this spot next week. Any, or actually, next week, we're not having Wednesday night service. Next week, it's a Tuesday night service, praise service. I encourage you to come back. One of the most fun services we have is that Tuesday night praise service here at the church, 7 o'clock, and pie. <laughs> I see you there, Mike. See, I'm focused on the spiritual of this, the praise part. But some people just have to focus on the pie part. I get it uh praise and pie it will be a pie fellowship so bring pie pastor randy likes that was a coconut cream pie that's what he's always asking for um i like everything chocolate boy it's so good um, but you people they all bring so many good berry pies and rhubarb pies and all kinds of stuff that's so good but anyway it's one of the best services of the year it's such a great time it's all testimonies and we read some scripture and we just praise the lord for how good he is all right Look forward to seeing you that next Tuesday. Then we'll pick up next time, all right? Lord, thank you so much for your love for us and for the way you show your kindness to us. And thank you, Lord, you give us instructions. I pray that we would have a heart for making peace in our relationships. I pray we would learn to trust you and know you and love you so that we might obey you as we ought. Give us a great night, Lord, thank you. I pray our relationships would be a good testimony for you, be a good example to others to show your reputation to the world and that we might um, uh, reflect your character to those around us uh, as